Let's take our Bibles, open it to Galatians chapter 6, and we're just doing a, a mini-series in the new year um, called Church Foundations, where we would like to just um, consider for ourselves and what the, word of the God, what the Word of the Lord teaches us about discipleship as well as church discipline. Um, really strong foundations we ought to build our Christian lives upon um, as we study the Scriptures, and, um, and then we'll return to the book of Ephesians as we move our way through that book um, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So this is a part two. Um, so if you've missed last week's sermon on carrying one another's burdens and what that means and how that looks like, um, make sure to listen, listen to that on the website. Today we're going to focus and zoom in on verses 3 to verse 5. But let's read the whole text together, um, Galatians 6 from verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one taste his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load." It's the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves this afternoon before you. We ask you for your Holy Spirit to search us this afternoon. Lord, show us our pride. Show us the true state of our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we see our hearts, that we won't despair, but that we would see Jesus and see Him as our only hope. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this sermon to cut, or this, your word, to cut into our hearts and to humble us. Lord, we also want to just use this time to pray for Mo. And Lord, we thank you for Mo and her service to us. Lord, we know and we acknowledge that it's only by your grace. It's only by grace that she is what she is, Lord. And we pray that you would make her way, her path straight as she acknowledge you in all her ways. And we just thank you for our sister, Lord. Thank you for her. Lord, now come and please speak to us clearly through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we think about discipleship, we have seen last week that this text, um, Galatians 6 verse 1 to 5, really confronts us with our comfort zones. It makes us uncomfortable because all believers have a clear call in verse 2. What are we to do? We are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now remember to share burdens with other believers means your life will now become more difficult because of the church, because of other Christians. It means that you and I will have to sacrifice our time, our money and effort to move out and to be part of one another's lives. When you share a burden, there's now a burden on you. So remember that. So now you are also carrying a burden on your shoulders. But that's a good thing because as we carry one another's burdens... We are becoming more like our burden-bearing Savior who carried the greatest burden to the cross. The burden that no man, that no woman could carry. The burden of our sin. And so as we carry one another's burdens, we get a small foretaste of what it means to be like Christ. Now before we look at verses 3 to 5 together, allow me to say something to perhaps those believers who are in verse 1. That says, if you are caught in any transgression... You are to be restored by another brother or another brother or sister, a spiritual believer, which simply refers to a spirit-filled believer, right? I want to say something to you because I think there's a temptation or a lie 
that the devil can use to, make, to stop you from going to someone and saying, listen, I need help. Remember, um, yes, it's the spiritual, spiritual person's responsibility to initiate the relationship because it says the spiritual person must go and restore. But there are some sins that nobody knows about. There are some sins that you get so caught in, so entangled in, and that only you know about, and then it's your responsibility to come out and ask for help. And here is the one thing that perhaps the devil might use to stop you from doing that, from initiating a conversation for help. Does this sound familiar? But I don't want to be a burden to that person. I can't share this. You know what? This is my problem. I've made the bed. I need to learn how to sleep in it. Right? I just need to deal with this on my own. Look again at verse 2. What does it say? It says, bear one another's what? Burdens. If you don't share your burden with another believer, you are robbing that believer from becoming more like Christ. You are taking away an opportunity for that brother and sister to learn how to be like Jesus. So reject that notion, beloved. Reject the notion that you're just going to be a burden. So rather, you're just going to have to deal with your sin on your own. It is more important to be holy than to be comfortable. It is more important to do whatever it takes to obey the Lord than it is to not bother someone. It is more important to cut off your hand, to pluck out your eye, to be violent with your sin and to do whatever it takes than to be comfortable and go to hell with both eyes and both hands, right? Sin is that serious. We should not spare any effort. And one of the weapons God has given us to kill our sin is the church, is one another. One of the knives God has given us to cut out the cancer is the church, one another. And the, but by the way, beloved, when I say that when you're caught in some transgression, do not think of baby Christians this is true even for mature believers, for mature Christians. I have often heard of pastors who have been pastors for decades, but because of their difficulty in their marriage, they went to see someone. They needed help from other pastors or other brothers and sisters to help them with their marriage problems. Here's one example of that. Lou Priolo, he writes a book called Resolving Conflict. So if anyone is able to resolve conflict, it should be the man who wrote a book on resolving conflict, right? And he wrote the book Resolving Conflict, and he writes this. Listen to this quote. He says, I am a fellow in the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. This means I've been certified by our parent organization not only to counsel, but also to train others to counsel and to help them become certified. I'm also the founder of a new organization called Competent to Counsel International, under which I train and provide materials for pastors and counselors internationally. But in spite of this, along with 30 years of experience in helping others to resolve their conflicts, my wife and I have had conflicts that we were not able to resolve on our own. In, in such cases, we went to someone else, a fellow elder in our church who we agreed upon beforehand to help us resolve the matter, now, I'm telling you this to make the point that sometimes we all, even elders, Christian authors and counselors, need true yoke fellows to help us to untangle conflicts with other believers, end quote. So don't ever be ashamed to ask for help. When there's a sin, when there's a conflict, 
When there's an issue, you just don't seem to have the wisdom, the ability, the power to overcome. If our passage teaches us anything, it is that we need each other. We desperately need each other. God designed the church in such a way that there would be spiritual believers and struggling believers. Put them all in one pot so that we can all learn to be more like Christ. And that's the beauty of it. So the question I want to answer is, why don't we come for help? When we have the serious problem, when there is a sin in us that we don't want, we can't overcome, why don't we open up and come for help? Or to flip the tables, when we see somebody else struggling and sin, why don't we go and provide the help that he or she needs? Why do we not struggle to be our brother's keeper, to be our sister's keeper, or ignore it when someone stops coming to church, when someone keeps on sinning in a specific way? Why do we ignore that? Well, I think verses 3 to 5 gives us the answer. It's pride. Pride. We think too highly of ourselves. We compare ourselves with other people instead of comparing ourselves to Christ. So when we are caught in a transgression, we don't come for help because what will that person think of me? Right? What is that? That's pride. That's pride. On the other hand, when we don't go to help and we think of something like this, how could that person struggle like that? Well, you know what? That person should just leave. That person should just get out of here. You know what? I'm not going to waste my time with weak people like him or her. What is that? Pride. The same issue on the flip side. It is our pride that stops us from dealing with sin opening up and sharing our burdens and it is pride that stops us from going and helping other people with their burdens and pride is such a deadly sin because it's the mother of all sins and it can dwell within you without you even knowing it and here's why proud people think they are humble let that sink in and humble people think they are proud that's the truth. That's why pride is such a deadly sin, because you are tempted to think you are not proudful. Pride is an invisible cancer. It, pride makes us feel we are okay to live a hypocritical life, to live a double life, when we're not okay. Pride makes us more aware of other people's sins, other people's failures, than our own sins and our own failures. Pride makes us unable to deal with conflict or to ask for forgiveness. For example, this is a very common way we tend to deal with our conflicts. When someone confronts you with sin or with a, con or a confrontation, you say, but you're not perfect either. That's pride manifested, right? It tempts us to exaggerate the facts. Well, I'm never late. I, I would never do that. Or I never act or treat you like this. Or you always do that. That's an exaggeration. It tempts us to justify our sinful behavior on something else. But that's just the way I am. You'll just have to deal with my personality. Or you won't understand. I just had to do it. I had no other option. Or if you did not push me so far, I would never have done that. Now, I'm not saying these things to just make you feel bad. I'm, or exempting myself as if I've never done any of these things or said these things. But I want you... I want to help you see we all have it. I want to help you see that this is our problem. 
But healing and grace and forgiveness comes only when we acknowledge it, when we say, acknowledge the pride that's already there. Listen to another quote from Lou Priolo. He writes, A humble person, on the contrary, realizes that he is a great sinner, capable not only of doing wrong, but also of being blinded to the sin about which he is being confronted about. So when someone confronts you and you disagree, humility says you might be even blind to the very sin that someone wants to correct you in. And you, instead of responding to the person's attitude or how the person treated you or even corrected you, you ask God, what do you want to teach me through this person? What do you want to tell me through this correction? Even if that person had a bad attitude, right? Even if a humble person receives correction. On the flip side, listen to Proverbs 9, verse 7 to 8. It says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So here's a simple test. How do you respond when someone corrects you? What is your default response when someone wants to help you improve or shows a sin or issue in your life that's not right? If you can, try to think of the very last conflict you had, either with your, your wife, your husband, your children, your friend, your colleague. Your... Try to think of the last conflict you had. How did you respond? Here are common ways our pride will manifest in, in conflict. Think about pouting, crocodile tears, or self-pity. That's pride. Or what about giving someone the silent treatment? Someone has hurt you and now you are saying to that person, I'm not talking to you anymore. Do you know what's the biblical word for passive aggressiveness and the silent treatment? The biblical word for it? It's called vengeance. Vengeance. I will take vengeance on you. I will punish you for what you have done to me. And I will do that by doing nothing. I will do that by ignoring you. I will hurt you because you have hurt me. I will not talk to you. That's vengeance. That's pride. Blame shifting. Blowing up, screaming, yelling, slamming doors. And we could go on. The list goes on. But do you see how deadly pride is? Pride stops our growth. Pride stops us from coming to Christ. Pride kills your sanctification. Pride will drag you to hell because the only people God can forgive is the person that acknowledges he or she is a sinner. Because James 4 verse 6 says, He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The proud will never seek for Jesus because they don't need him. They don't need forgiveness because they don't think they've done anything wrong. The proud will never seek for help because they can just fix themselves. They will just self-help. They'll just exert more willpower. They will just pick themselves up and dust off their shoes and then they will do it the next time. The Bible says something different about us, which is humbling. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unable to please God on our own. We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You need a new heart. You don't just need new makeup. You need a resurrection. That's what you need. And there's only one who can do that for you. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can take that heart and make it humble and make it soft. And even for us, Christian, even for us, even though we've been born again, even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we have a new heart, Jesus as well said, without me, you can do how much? Nothing. So even in the Christian life, we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit, upon the Word, upon, upon Jesus' prayers for us. And that is what God wants for you this afternoon, to humble you. And that's the greatest gift He can give you, because as He shows you your pride, you will be able to turn to a Savior, to cry out for His grace, and He will give it. So here's the thing you should not do. Don't say, I wish somebody else could listen to this sermon right I wish that person could be here right now. Don't do that. That's a temptation as well. Just ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to know in this? Don't think of anybody else except yourself. Searching your own life for what the Holy Spirit wants to work on. Remember the outline of our, of our passage. So, verses 1 and 2 is about sharing burdens. Um, it says in verse 2, we are to bear one another's burdens. But in verse 5, he almost switches and says, they, we are to bear our own load. So, there are burdens to share, verses 1 and 2. And there are burdens to keep, verses 3 to 5. And the burdens to keep are the burdens that will humble us. And that's the second point we are going to consider together. The second point is burdens to keep. His verses 3 to 4, which will humble us so that we will restore one another with gentleness and with humility. And as we look at each verse, it's clear that each of these verses, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, represents a specific mindset, a kind of mind. It summarizes that. So verses 3, verse 3 speaks about the proud mind. Verse 4 speaks about the humble mind. And verse 5 speaks of a sober mind. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's look at the first way of thinking that will ruin our discipleship and our church if we don't take care. And that is the proud mind. The proud mind in verse 3. Notice the text begins with the word for. The first word is for. Now, when a good Bible student must ask, if you see the word for, what is it there for? What is it connecting in the previous context? And as you see what Paul says, it's clear that he's connecting to the end of verse 1. Just read at the end of verse 1 again. It says... Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. Remember what he said? That's an essential attitude to restore another sinning brother or sister. We need to remember that the very sin that we are wanting to restore is the very sin we are capable of doing ourselves. So we should never think, how could you do that, right? We should be humble and say, listen, I want to help you because maybe tomorrow I need your help. Because I'm a sinner too. You see, that's the humble mind. But in verse 3, Paul expands on that idea of when how a mind or how a person thinks like that is not humble, that doesn't think he needs to watch himself lest he too be tempted. He shows what this person is thinking. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So there are three aspects here, right? There's the delusion. He thinks he is something, but there's the reality when he is nothing, and there's the conclusion, he deceives himself. Now, it's important to note when, when, when Paul says this person thinks he is something, he's specifically thinking that he is something in comparison to other people. 
That's what causes his pride because we see that in the contrast in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Paul contrasts this person with, let each one test his own work. You see the opposite of a proud mind is someone that's not focused on other people's works, but is focused on his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So the pride of verse 3 is specifically the pride of comparing yourself with other people and then thinking you are somebody great. You look at your Bible knowledge and you see the other, pe- other people's Bible knowledge around you and you say, wow, what an amazing person I am. You see your progress in sanctification, perhaps for 10 years, and you look at the Christian that has been walking for one year and you say, I've arrived. I've made it. I'm somebody. Look at how awful are the, all the other Christians are. Look at how awful all the other people are. And that proud mind will often elevate their own way of living as the standard for every Christian. So they would also be tempted with legalism. Right? They would say, but this is my lifestyle and that should be every Christian's lifestyle. Otherwise, everybody is sinning. And we should not do that because what does verse 1 say? What are we to restore someone in? Restore, if anyone is caught in any transgression. It must be a transgression. A transgression that is a breaking of God's law not of our laws. Here's a biblical example of that. Um, we've read this last week as well, but Luke 18, verse 11 to 12. Um, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What is he doing? He's comparing himself to others. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector in verse 12. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So he says he fasted twice a week, but the Old Testament only requires a fast once a year. So he did twice a week, and God only said once a, once a year. He says he gives tithes of all that he gets. Remember Jesus' words? He says, you tithe cumin and you tithe your, your garden herbs. But God never required that. God just required the tithing of the main crops and the main animals. And, but because he did more than God required of him, he felt like he is somebody great. In comparison to all those people who don't live like him, who don't fast twice a week, who don't keep all these man-made rules that he has made up himself. Why can't other Christians be more like me? How could that Christian not do those things if they are holy? But again, we should only restore a brother or sister for actual transgressions. So today, how does this look like today? Here's a few perhaps modern examples of how this legalism can creep into our hearts thinking we are somebody when we are nothing. Alcohol versus non-alcohol, right? Some Christians drinking alcohol, some Christians don't, not drinking alcohol. The King James Version versus, versus the ESV. Okay. Old hymns versus more contemporary hymns or contemporary Christian music, right? Forms of entertainment, the way certain Christians find entertainment. The way we dress, some Christians dressing more formal, other Christians dressing more casually. The kind of car we drive, kind of vacations we go to. And here's the hot button today, here's the hot one. Christians who accept the vaccine and Christians who reject the vaccine. Beloved, by the way, it's fine to have strong convictions of these things and even to have concerns about some of these things, which I do myself. But if it's not sinful according to God, if it's not sinful according to the Bible, we should not judge 
our brothers and sisters. So I love Romans 14 here because Romans 14 says there's a sin of the strong brother and there's a sin of the weak brother. The strong brother, the one who has a biblically trained conscience, who knows that they are free in Christ, they can enjoy God's gifts without feeling guilty, have the temptation to despise those who think it's sin. We as the stronger brothers must not despise our weaker brothers and sisters because they do it out of love. And the weaker brothers and sisters must not judge the stronger brothers and sisters for not doing what they think the Lord wants them to do. Do you see? So both of those sins we should be careful of. So we should reject man-made legalistic rules. But even for actual transgressions, we should be humble enough not to just go and find the first sin we see and just pound somebody. We should be slow to rebuke. Listen to 1 Peter 4 verse 8. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If somebody doesn't do something habitually, if you see someone has fallen once, you don't go immediately because you say, in love, you will cover this sin. But as Lou Priolo wisely says, only when someone keeps throwing the covers off. <laughs> okay, so you want to cover and somebody keeps throwing the covers off. That's when you go. That's when you say, listen, I love you too much to let, let this one go. I want to help you. I want to restore you and help you serve Christ. And, or in the words of this one, only when someone is caught or entangled or when it's an habitual sin, that's when we go. But the proud mind won't do that, won't give that sort of grace, that sort of patience with people. They won't be gentle. They won't restore someone knowing that they too are very capable of the sin that they see. In other words, Paul draws a strong conclusion at the end of verse 3. What is the conclusion? When he thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So deceives himself in what? Well, of course, by thinking he is somebody when he is nothing, but also deceiving himself in thinking that he's the verse one spiritual Christian. You deceive yourself to think you are a spiritual person for all your man-made rules, for all the things that you do that other Christians don't do, when you are not spiritual. You are not a spirit-filled Christian filled with the love and grace and kindness of the Lord. And again, beloved, we are all tempted to do this. We are all prone to look at ourselves in the light of other people. Instead, Paul says we should have a humble mind. Instead of the proud mind of verse 3, verse 4, yes, the second mind we need to have. Our focus should not be on other people's works. It should be on our works. That's the humble mind. Look at verse 4. But, notice the contrast. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So, the opposite of pride is to just examine yourself. And then you won't boast in how well you are doing in comparison to others. You will boast in what God has done in you. You will boast in any good work you see. You'll see God's work. That's the point in a nutshell. But I want to highlight one implication of this contrast. There's, there's a contrast. So if you, you're a proud, you think you are something. But the moment you examine yourself, what will happen to you? You will know that you are nothing. <laughs> you will, the moment you start to examine your life, you will see that you are not somebody. There is still a lot of work to be done. And here's two things that will happen. Two things that will happen to you as you obey verse 4. As you examine your own heart, your own life first. This is what first effect is you will notice that there is still a lot of work left to be done. That's the first effect. 
So as you test your own work, you will undoubtedly find many areas in which God still needs to do some chiseling, some cutting away of the things that are not like Christ. You will not just think of your external deeds, but you also think of your internal motives and desires. You will look to Christ and realize the standard is not how well you are doing compared to other Christians. The standard is how do you measure against Christ? He is the standard. He is the Christian's yeah, standard. He is the one we are striving to become like. Not another person, not another Christian, not another pastor. Even in those instances where God has given you a role model or pastors to follow, like listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So when we imitate a role model, it's, even that is for the sake of becoming more like Christ. And where our role models are not following Christ, we say, I can't follow you in this because you're not like, acting like Christ. Christ is the standard. And the reason why we need Christ as the standard is that will humble us and that will help us not to be proud. Imagine a matric who works hard and thinks he is somebody because he's comparing his work to a grade one's work. He says, wow, I'm so smart. Like this, this grade one can't even read. I mean, look at me. Yes, I'm getting 20% and 30%, but I'm, I'm going to ace this, this book, this reading book, this person. See, what, what we'll do when you compare yourself to other people, you will result in pride. But imagine that same matric compares himself to Elon Musk. And suddenly he realized he's a mouse. He's a, he's a nobody. He's a, he doesn't know anything, okay? But then imagine Elon Musk comes to that metric and says, I want to tell you all my secrets. I want to show you how I did it. I want to teach you everything you, I know that you can take over from my company, that you can run it. So although that metric might be humbled by his stupidity and his lack of knowledge, he won't be discouraged because he knows that the person he is comparing himself to loves him and wants to walk a road with him and is working on him to make him more like himself. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So he is our standard and he loves you. So as you see your shortcomings, it doesn't discourage you because he paid for your sins. And he says, I want to reveal myself to you. I want to tell you my secrets, as it were, through the word. I want you to spend time with me. I want, you, I want to rub off on you that you can become more like me. So what happens? You are humbled, but he gives grace to the humble. Now think a little bit about what that standard is. So let's just think about how high the standard is. Jesus loved always. He was joyful. He did not fall into self-pity, grumbling, complaining about his life. He was full of peace because he knew his father. And when he did the will of the father, that was enough for him. Whatever his circumstances were, he was content when God was pleased. And here's the greatest one. He perfectly obeyed the great commandment every second, every week of every month of every year. To love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength. Every moment, every day, every second he did that. And he loved his neighbor as himself. In contrast, we have not obeyed the great commandment for one millisecond. 
There was not one millisecond of our lives where we loved the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our soul, and all of our minds. But, again, that won't cause you to despair because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Even though we see our many sins, we look up and see Christ crucified for us. He died for us. Our failures He has paid, and the righteousness we need before God He has given by grace. And so that's the first effect examining your own life will have. It will humble you as you compare yourself to Christ, but it will also encourage you because the one you're comparing yourself to loves you and has died for you and will bring you home. But here's the second effect. The second effect, not just the humbling, but whatever good work you find in yourself, your boasting will be in what God has done in you and not in what you have done. Just a few verses later. So in the same book, Galatians 6 verse 14, Paul makes this crystal clear, right? 6 verse 14 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the boasting he does in himself is not the boasting as if he did it by his own strength and his own power. It's a boasting in the cross because the good works he sees in him is, a ref, is an effect of the cross. It's an effect of what Jesus has done. So the humble person, a humble mind won't look at his good works and say, Wow, what an amazing person I am. No, you will look at yourself and say, What a gracious, wonderful, amazing God I serve who forgave me of all my sins, who gave me the Holy Spirit, who gave me His Word, who gave me this mind, who worked and who prepared the good works that I am doing beforehand, that I should walk in them, do you see? And Paul, I think Paul displays this humility perfectly. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul could say, listen, when you compare my work to the other apostles' work, I can honestly say I was working harder than any of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Ultimately, any discipline, any energy you expend in, the, in, in your path of obedience is not you. It is His grace. It is His grace. We say that the good work that He begun in us, the good work we see that He is doing through us, is all for God. Salvation is from God, through God, and for God. All of it is for God, so that He gets the glory. That's the mindset of a humble person, radically God-centered. A humble mind which doesn't compare himself to other people, but to Christ. And that person then clings to Christ as his only hope, as his only Savior, as his only grace. And so the pride, proud mind thinks he's somebody in comparison to others, deceiving himself. The humble person looks to Christ, compares himself to Christ. He's humbled by that, encouraged by that. And here's the last mindset we need, desperately need, and that is the sober mind. The sober mind in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. It says, For each will have to bear his own load. Now what does that mean? Again, I think there's another four. I think the four 
connects to verse 4, why, when it says, why should we not compare ourselves to other people? Why should we not be tempted to say, I want to see how well I am doing in comparison to that person? Is because, for each person will have to bear his own load. Each one of us will have to bear our own load on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, you won't be judged with how well you've done to other people. You'll be judged for how you have fed yourself. Right? So you can't say, but Lord, I did so much better than that person. I did so much better than that person. Or Lord, what about that person? That person did this in this situation. And the Lord will graciously say, but this is not their judgment now. Believe me, they will be judged. Don't you worry about them. How did you respond? How did you react? How did you treat this person in this situation? Did you obey me? Did you submit yourself under me? Did you trust me with all your heart and not lean and haven't lean on your own understanding? Do you see how sobering that is? To realize that each one of us will have to bear our own load. We can't. We're not going to be judged for how we did compared to others. We're going to be judged for how we did compared to God's law. So there's a sense in which you should not care how other people treat you, react to you, or deal with you. Rather, your only concern must be, am I obedient to the Lord? Am I pleasing to the Lord? How do I please Him in this situation? No matter what people do, no matter what others say. We are not living for the audience of other people, but we're living for the audience of one. We're living for the smile of God. Even if everybody hates you after that obedience, you are pleased. Like the three friends of Daniel, right? When they've determined their course, what they had to do, they threw away all the consequences. We will not bow. Burn us. But we will not bow. For we fear God. That's the Christian's attitude. Right? That's a sober mind because we will be judged by him. That's why also we need Christ. Listen to Romans 14 verse 10. I think this is a very good summary of, of the entire text. Galatians 6 verse 1 to 5. Romans 14 10 to 12. It's a great parallel text and a great summary. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. That's a good summary of Galatians 6. So beloved, are you humble before God? Are you not just able to receive correction, but do you welcome it? Do you know that you need it? That you have many blind spots in your life which only other people can see? And you need that correction. Or do you tend to make excuses for yourself? Or do you tend to judge? Or do you, do you tend to pass critical judgment on others that are not like you? Or just seems not to be as good as you are? Dear church, we so desperately need humility. Humility. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Let us humble ourselves this afternoon. Perhaps the selfishness. Perhaps the isolation. The idea that I don't want to share my burden because I will deal with it on my own. No. Let us look to Christ not only as our Savior but also as our Savior. I want to say this. Perhaps you see your heart. You see the pride of it. You see the ugliness of it. And here's the good news. Jesus came for proud people. 
because those, those are the only kind of people available to save. <laughs> Proud people. He came for sinners. He even came for those who didn't even know they needed him. Right? When he was on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. So if that's you, come to Christ. Humble yourself. He will change you. He will humble you. For he is a gracious, powerful, and loving Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to come to your throne and confess our self-deception, our pride. We want to confess that it is so much easier to blame shift and to compare ourselves to other people instead of comparing ourselves to Christ and to him as the standard. Lord, forgive us that when you have graciously sent people to us to correct us, to show us our sin, that we rejected it, that we often despised it, Lord. Instead of welcoming the pain, welcoming the hurt, for it will humble us to be more like Christ. And, but Lord, I pray for Heritage Baptist Church here, Lord. I pray that, we would, that you would protect us from this one sin. That you would protect us from ever thinking that we are better, that we are better maybe because of our Bible knowledge or because of um, the way we do church. Or, Lord, please protect us from that pride that so easily corrupts the grace, the good work that you are doing. And I pray that we would boast in the cross and boast in your work in us. Lord, thank you that you are busy working in us, that you are conforming us and working and changing us from the inside out. Help us not to resist you and to resist the work of the Spirit in our lives. And I pray that you will help us to be obedient, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I pray this for your namesake.